I've known three incredibly gifted men in my lifetime who could fix or repair anything. One was Joni's dad, Tony. The other one was Garland Walker's dad, Bud. And the third one was our next door neighbor, Ern. They could fix or repair anything. Now, currently, they reside in heaven. Uh, they live in mansions, I suppose, that, that don't need repair. But I can't repair or fix anything, but occasionally I try. So I have this kind of this vision, and it actually kind of makes me, makes me laugh when I think about it, that every time I set out to fix or repair something around the house, I just have this vision of, of these three incredible men in heaven just looking down and looking at themselves and saying, what in the world is that boy up to now? You've done that. You've, you've looked out your window. You've looked out your window at your neighbor's house and, and gone, honey, come here, come here, come here. What, what, what in the world are they up to? Now, in Nehemiah's time, if you lived outside of Jerusalem, you might look at these brand, well, repaired walls, not quite brand new, but repaired, rebuilt walls. And you might have looked and looked over and seen the Israelites doing something really unusual. And, and you might have said, what in the world are they up to? Honey, come look. Come look. On top of their houses and, and the gates, they're building these little shacks. And, and the wife says, well, yeah, I know. Because I was out the other day and, and they were all coming around and gathering up sticks and branches. What in the world are these people up to? Well, what they were up to is they had been reading and studying and trying to understand God's word. And they came across a portion in Leviticus that told them that they were to have this week-long festival, that they were to celebrate the seventh month of every year. Now, there are different festivals or feasts or celebrations or whatever you want to call them uh, in in the Old Testament, and, and each one is used to commemorate some great act of God in the history uh, of the people. Uh, the particular one that they read about was called the Feast of Tabernacles, or some people call it the Feast of Booths. But anyway, it was used to, as a week-long celebration to commemorate the fact that when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, as they were in the wilderness, that they had no permanent housing. And so they lived in temporary housing. And this is supposed to help them remember the, the wonderful act of, of salvation that came through God and his deliverance and how he cared for his people. But we want to read starting in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 14. It kind of tells a story. It says, They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. In verse 16, So the people went out and brought back, brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. Now, this probably looked real crazy, as I said, to people who were looking around and trying to figure out what in the world are these people doing. But what looked crazy to them was actually an act of obedience. 
You know, sometimes God calls us to do things that, that might look a little crazy to people around us. But they were just being obedient. But anytime God wants you to be obedient to him, he has a purpose. God always wants us to be obedient, obviously. But there's a purpose for that obedience. In this particular case, it has to do with revival. Last week we talked about the idea that the Israelites came and, and rediscovered the word of God and they were open to hearing the word of God and they were open to understanding it and they were open, open to being broken by it. They were also open to being encouraged by it. Here, they obeyed it. And what happened? Well, they had a revival of sorts. There was a, a return to life. And here's what we find. In verse 17, it says, The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. They celebrated like they had not celebrated in years. The joy that the people had was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. There was a tremendous emotional response to this. But revival is not just an emotional response. I mean, it, it's a part of the truth about what happens when you're revived. But, but it's not the whole truth. Because it's also in a revival. It's a reviving of the memory. It's a reviving of the memory of what God has done. His great acts of salvation in the history of his people. It, it's reviving the knowledge and, and the trust in a faithful God. That goes way beyond just emotions. You know, emotions fade. And oftentimes they fade quickly. However, the whole truth on which we can always rely is the knowledge that God is always faithful. He is always faithful and we are renewed when we take time to consider his faithfulness, not just in the past, but also that knowledge that he's going to do it again. The key point in all of this is the revival Consisting only of emotional highs is incomplete and it's short-lived. And what follows illustrates the whole truth a little bit further. Let's look at chapter 9. It says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. This is kind of odd. Because this is the same month that they were celebrating and that the joy was unlike anything that, that anyone could, <laughs> had ever seen before. And now all of a sudden they're coming with fasting and with sackcloth and, and with, with dust on their head or, or ashes. Do you know what that signifies? It's a sign of grief. So how in the world do these people in such a short time go from this joy that no one had ever seen before to, to grief? I mean, I mean, is the revival over with? Well, not at all. Because part of the revival is remembering the faithfulness of God. But part of revival also talks about who we are and considering who we are in light of who God is. 
So let's look at kind of how that develops here in Nehemiah. In verse 2, it says, Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Again, they separated themselves from anyone who was not of, uh, of Jewish descent. They separated themselves. And, and this was about them. This wasn't about anybody else. This, this, this was about them. And the other thing is that what it does is it renews in them a realization of who they are. They are God's chosen people. But also when they realize they're God's chosen people, they come to the realization that they've not lived as God's chosen people. So it sparks in them something. And it's more than just a, oh, forgive me, Lord. You know, you can be walking along and, and you suddenly realize that maybe you haven't been living in a way that God wants you to live. And, and so you say, oh, well, forgive me, Lord. And, and then you move on. I'm not saying that's wrong in and of itself, but look what happens here. These folks separate themselves. They realize that they are God's people separated. And they've been separated from God. And so what do they do? They get together and for six hours, six hours they stand and listen to the word of God. And then for another six hours, they confess and they worship. That's 12 hours. Texas Roadhouse would be closed by the time you got there today if we did that. How many people would stand and do that? But here's the other thing. is not only do they confess their sins, but they also confess the sins of their ancestors. Now, I find that odd because when I confess my sin, I usually don't go back and confess the sins of my ancestors. Why in the world would these people attempt to do that? I guess there's several explanations of maybe why, but at least for me, it's kind of just a realization of maybe how far they had strayed as a people. You know, they can actually look back and they can see how their ancestors didn't live as they were supposed to live. And so when you, when you say, look, I, I can't change it, but I'm sorry for the way they lived, but it, it stirs in me, God, a desire not to live like that. It, it, it's shown me, I don't want to go there. I don't want to live like that. I, I, I want to live now uh, for you. So I'm, I'm sorry for what they did, but it, it just, it's a realization that things have to change. And I think they realize that. Now, confession, though, is more than just an acknowledgement of the truth about your own sin. That's only part of the truth. The fact that you're a sinner, that you've sinned. That's, that's only part of the truth. Because confession is also about an acknowledgement of who God is. And the key point in all of this is that the whole truth includes both the truth about yourself and 
the truth about God. That's the whole truth. The truth about yourself and the truth about God. Now, what follows is the longest recorded prayer of confession that you'll probably ever see. It's a long one. But you know what? This confession, this long confession, the main theme is not the confession of sin. That's not the main theme. Yes, the people confess their sins. But more verses describe the faithfulness of God than the rebellion of the people. God is the main character in this confession, and the people are in a supporting role. But it illustrates, just like we said, that, that revival is incomplete if it's just emotions. So too is confession incomplete if all we do is confess who we are. Now the whole truth is we need to confess who we are, but we also in our confession need to confess who God is. Verses 6 through 15, and we're not going to read them, you can, can, uh, or this whole confession, you can read it for yourself. We're going to read part of it. But verses 6 through 15, they're a confession of, the, of creation, of the covenant, of redemption, of the greatness of God. The first 10 verses of this confession are about God. They don't mention the, the people's sins at all. It's all about the greatness of God. And the remainder does mention the sins of the people, but it alternates the sins of the people with things about God, like his grace and his mercy and his discipline and his salvation and his deliverance and his patience. The people confess their sins, but they also confess the faithfulness of God in this prayer. I want to read a great example. After those first 10 verses, we get down to Nehemiah 9.16. It just talked about how great God is, the creator, the redeemer. And then they say, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness, but day by day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. The people certainly confess their sin. 
but they tell the whole truth. And the whole truth is not just about their sin, but it's about the faithfulness of God who loves his children and who pursues his children and who wants them to return to him and who wants to forgive them. He is a faithful God and in spite of the unfaithfulness of the people, keeps his covenant with them. Now, when we usually confess our sins, usually we don't tell the whole truth. And, and by that, I don't mean that we leave something out, though maybe we might. You know, we confess everything but this, maybe over here. But that's not really what this is talking about or what I'm talking about when I say that sometimes when we confess our sins, we don't tell the whole truth. What happens is we have somehow learned to separate a time of confession from a time of worship. In, in other words, we will confess our sins in a separate context than where we confess our faith. But I think it's better to imitate what they do in Nehemiah in this long prayer of confession. That when we come before God, we need to intersperse confession of our sins also with a confession of who God is. And there are two advantages to doing that. There are two great advantages to doing that. The first one is this. When we tell the whole truth about ourselves and about God, when we tell the whole truth, it highlights the nature of sin. Now, even though sin and evil and, and wicked and, and all sorts of variations of those words appear over 1,800 times in the Bible, society has a way of downplaying sin. Uh, we'll, we'll blame sin on economic conditions or social conditions or, or whatever. And we really never get around to the fact that, that, that sin is in the heart. But, you know, that's society. And we can't really worry about that so much because we've got to take care of ourselves in the sense that we need to confess our own sins. And we need to get at the heart of the matter in our own hearts it's easy for us to, to say, well, society needs to do this and society needs to do that. But we need to, to <laughs> look inside ourselves. But here's the thing. Christians are bad about it too. Because what we will do is we will rationalize our sin by saying this. Well, you know, yeah, I, I do this, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, I... I, I cheat on my taxes but just a little bit and look at this guy over here he cheats on his taxes all the time you see how that works we like to play this self-justification game by comparing ourselves to someone else but here's the advantage to telling the whole truth because when we put our sins alongside of who a holy god is then we are without excuse. It reveals exactly who we are as opposed to who we need to be. We can compare ourselves to each other all day long and self-justify what we do. Or we can tell the whole truth and compare ourselves to God and it'll expose the truth about us. I love the example in Isaiah 6. It's a great example. Isaiah 
begins by saying that he saw the Lord and the Lord was high and, and lifted up and his train and his robe filled the temple. But then verse 5, when Isaiah sees himself and God, Isaiah's response in verse 5 is, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Mark Roberts writes that only when we see ourselves as we truly are, sinners lost without God, will our hearts be genuinely open for healing, forgiveness, and for profound cleansing. But the second advantage is that the whole truth encourages us to confess our sins. It actually encourages us to do that. Now, you might think, well, if you compare yourself to a holy God, that's frightening. And you might think, well, that might be a deterrent. But no, actually, it's not. Actually, the opposite is true. Because when we tell the whole truth by confessing the faithfulness of God as well as our sins, what actually happens is a great freedom to tell the truth about ourselves. The great freedom. When we proclaim that God is loving, that God is full of mercy and grace, to me, that's an encouragement to confess my sin. It's what God wants me to do. It's what he invites me to do. And I know when I do that he will forgive me and he will love me. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. While God's holiness exposes our sin, his grace and his mercy invite us to confess it. Because our sin, our sin was deserving of punishment and death. But Ephesians 2 says, But, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Both of those, both of those show the advantage of telling the whole truth. Realizing who we are. But also realizing that the God to whom we confess our wrongs is a loving and forgiving God who's full of grace and mercy. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the whole truth. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Those verses are at the center of the whole truth. Today we have a great opportunity. We're going to come to this table. And, and we are going to come here and we're going to take this bread and this cup. And we're going to be reminded... We're going to be reminded of God's love for us, of his mercy, of his sending his son to die for us, of the salvation that we have through him. We're going to be reminded of all of that.
But see, this whole truth works the other way as well. Because when we come here and we're reminded of God's goodness, then before we come here, we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves and see if there's something that, that we're carrying around that we need to leave behind before we come here and celebrate His goodness. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. One part of the truth, of whom I am the worst. The whole truth. For that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The whole truth. The whole truth. The truth about us and the truth about God. That's what we need to tell. Let's pray.